Well, if you are at all familiar with the Christmas and Christian tradition, you know that when Christmas season rolls around, you are likely to hear a few classic passages of scripture that you, there's a good chance you are going to hear every time Christmas rolls around. One of them, probably the primary one we've already heard read today when the duels lit the Advent candle for us, the passage from Luke chapter 2 that talks about good news of great joy, the angels coming and saying uh, that, that in the town of David a Savior has been born and that there will be a, a sign for us that the baby will be wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger and then the other angels join the angel and say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. I think the other passage that we are likeliest to hear during the Christmas season is actually one from the Old Testament that was written in the book of Isaiah and written about 800 years before that birth took place, one that anticipated it and pointed to it. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, and it goes something like this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and da-da-da, and a bunch of other stuff. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of something, and of his peace there will be no end, and other stuff. Well, it goes something like that, but the passage actually sounds a lot more like this. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, and the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I remember as a kid hearing those words righteousness and justice and government and, and saying, say what? I mean, how does that fit in the story of this, this little baby who's born in this stable? And frankly, I remember hearing the story lots of times after that. And each time I encountered the, that cluster of words in the middle of this promise, I find my, found myself with a similar reaction. What? What? What is this about? Well, there's a huge cultural distance between the time and place when those words were first spoken almost 3,000 years ago and the time and place in which we find ourselves today. And the, the ideas behind those words are probably pretty foreign to us. But alongside of that, something else has happened to make, to make it difficult for us to hear and to take in those words in the middle of the Christmas story. And that is that, that our understanding of the hope that we have as Christians has shrunk. And our hope has been truncated and, and whittled down over time. The version that many Christians have today is something along these lines. Every part of which is exactly right and true. I am a sinful person. Jesus came from heaven to die for me. If I put my trust in Jesus, I'm forgiven and I promised eternity in heaven. Every part of that is true, but the Christian hope that the Bible describes is so much wider in its scope and so much deeper in its reach than the small arc of our own individual lives. What God has in mind through Jesus is nothing less than the reclamation of the entire world and of humanity itself, all of which is anticipated for us and described for us in Isaiah chapter 9. 
So let's walk back through this passage and just kind of see if we can open it up a little bit more and have it sing to our souls with greater clarity. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. Immediately, it's made clear that this isn't one of us who will rise up among us. One who is especially gifted or powerful or charismatic who will kind of step forward from among us. This is a matter of God sending to us from outside of us as human race, our deliverer and our king. It doesn't say among us a child is born, but to us. And to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. The word government has nothing to do with political structures. It is a word that means rule, reign, kingship, dominion. This is describing the kingdom of the King Jesus. All the work that God is doing in this world will center on this one child who will grow to become a king and who will establish a kingdom that will swallow up all other kingdoms. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, four divine names, clearly uh, calling attention to the fact that while this Messiah will be human, this Messiah will be more than human and will be the son of God himself. And of the increase of his government at peace, there will be no end. His rule will widen and deepen until it absorbs all of the globe and all of time. And his rule will be marked by peace. Not peace the way that we think about it. Not peace meaning just kind of a shaky stalemate between warring and contentious powers. Not just the absence of conflict, but shalom. Which means Everyone and everything flourishing together in complete harmony and wholeness and fulfillment. That is what will characterize the kingdom of the Messiah. Everything and everyone flourishing together in perfect harmony. And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promises to David that someone from his own lineage, who will also be God's son at the same time, fully human but fully divine, will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in this coming king and in his kingdom, all of God's promises will be fulfilled. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Now, this is the part of the prophecy that we might raise our eyebrows at not really knowing what to do with it. Wait, what? Righteousness and justice? When we hear justice, we might think of a judge's pronouncement in a courtroom. And we, we hear the word righteous, righteous or righteousness, we really don't know what to make of that. Are we talking about moral perfection or, or kind of a negative holier-than-thou attitude? Or maybe we're just talking about being really good at something. I still remember when our covenant group gathered together one year and my friend Danny was driving a 14 passenger van that had all of us crammed into it. And, um, and he backed us up into this narrow little alley, skinny little alley. And Dave sitting next to me said, Danny, you have all backing righteousness. So maybe it just means you're really good at something. Justice and righteousness. When I was in eighth grade, I used to hang out all the time with my friend Dave Williams. And people would just refer to us as Dave and Dave, or the Daves. Hi, Daves, as we would walk by. Because if you saw one of us, the other one was probably close by. Well, it's kind of like these two words. If you find one of them in the Old Testament, you will almost always find the other one nearby. 
Think, for example, of Amos chapter 5, verse 24. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or never, yeah, never-failing stream. So let's just get to know these two words, justice and righteousness, a little bit better. Justice means setting things right. It means putting things that are bent and broken in our society back to the way that they were supposed to be, straight and whole. When we hear the word justice, it might be helpful to think in terms of societal orthopedics. You know, orthopedics is the art of straightening and healing what's bent and broken. So justice is the thing that makes shalom a reality. Justice leads to shalom. So we should always join those two words in our minds as we think about them. Things need to be put right so that everything and everyone can flourish. That's what justice is about. The meaning of the word righteousness is hinted at by the first part of the word. Righteousness means that we are thinking right. Our motives are right. Our hearts are right. We're making right choices. We're doing the right thing. But not just in a vague and kind of theoretical way. There's something profoundly community-centered in this word. It always has to do with the way that we relate to other people. The, it, it, righteousness always happens in the context of relationship. It means treating each other the right way. What's that line from the song in the, the old movie, White Christmas? You didn't do right by me. Righteousness is doing right by each other. It is treating each other the right way. So justice is about putting things right, and righteousness is about treating people right. So both justice and righteousness, it turns out, have to do with this idea of lining things up along some standard that has already been established for us. You know, when you're writing a paper and you go up to your toolbar and you click the alignment box that makes the beginning of every one of the sentences all line up in a tidy row along the left-hand side of the page, when you do that, that's that it's called being left justified. And that captures an important part of the meaning of the word justice. It means getting things straightened out getting them all lined up along some other fixed vertical line. So justice is lining all the parts of our society up with the fixed point that is God's holy and loving character. The meaning of righteousness is very similar to this. It also conveys the idea of things lining up to some fixed and unbudging line. For years, all through middle school, I knew I was going to be an architect. So I took every drafting class that was available and this is before CAD programming was available. It's probably before computers were invented. Uh, who knows? But uh, that meant us doing old school drafting with paper and pencil and triangles and this thing. This is my T-square from my drafting and architecture days. So to make a vertical line, what you do is you take your T-square and you line it up on the edge, the metal edge of the table. And by doing that, then that establishes a fixed horizontal line. And then you put a triangle up on top of that. It's interesting that the word right angle or right triangle originally was upright angle or upright triangle. So you're asking the question, what, what is perfectly true? What is perfectly vertical? Well, it's that which corresponds to this perfectly vertical line over here.
So righteousness and justice both convey this idea of being lined up with some standard that is off the page. Listen to another one of the messianic promises in the book of Isaiah that brings these two words together with this idea of a line that serves as our fixed guide, a line that is God himself. Isaiah 28, 16 and 17. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who trusts will never be dismayed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. Jesus comes to establish a kingdom that is defined by justice and righteousness. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And we would be completely mistaken if we thought that we were somehow, through our collective efforts, that we were somehow capable of bringing about a just and righteous society. We are not. But God promises that he will. God will bring this about through the loving rule of his son. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay, so now we come to the really challenging part of this promise in Isaiah chapter 9. It didn't happen. Jesus was born, and he died, and he rose from the dead. And there is hardly any place you can look anywhere in our society where you can find anything that looks or sounds remotely like this picture of what God promised he would establish through his son. Well, the reason, as you know well, if you've read the rest of the New Testament, and if you haven't, I would certainly encourage you to read it, is that there's a second act to the great redemptive drama, which is yet to come. In the first act, Jesus came and he lived in our midst to reveal God to us. He died in our place to reconcile us to God. He rose again from the dead, making it possible for us to be in relationship with God for eternity. But in the second great act, Jesus will come again. And when he does, he will put all things right, not just things in our own hearts, not just things between us and God. He will put everything right. Listen to how he describes this in Matthew chapter 13, in the parable that he tells beginning in verse 24. Jesus told them this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and he sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and they said, sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Well, then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, would well, you want us to go out and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then he left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him. and They said, explain this parable of the weeds to us. And he answered them this. The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. 
As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of his Father. Chapters 19 and 20 in the book of Revelation Describe this same moment in even more dramatic, symbolic language. This moment at the end of human history is not a, a good time was had by all happy conclusion to universalistic hopes. Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, rise, rides in on a white horse as a conquering king, followed by the armies of heaven. And we are told that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. He has come to bring justice. At the close of the age, he systematically rids the earth of all that opposes God or is contrary to God's perfect will. The evil one and every demon who ever served him is thrown out of God's presence and into the lake of, of fire eternally. And everyone who has turned his or her back on God and rejected his offer of new life in Christ, everyone whose name is not written in the book of life is sent away from God's presence as well. And then God, God establishes a new realm of peace and justice and righteousness that will last forever. The, the opening five verses in chapter 21 of Revelation are amazing. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And then you come to this verses three and four and five, this description of God being in the midst of his people and they are all made new and everything that is wrong and broken is set right and is restored to the way God intended it to be. And then it says, the old order of things has passed away for he who was seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And that is the substance of our hope as followers of Christ. Which leaves us in the difficult and hopeful, in the already but not yet period of time between the first coming of Jesus, when he came to make us right with God, and his return at the end of the age, when he comes to make all things right. In this in-between time, we live in a world in which the people around us do not treat each other right, favoring and fawning over some and marginalizing and mistreating others. And we live in a society in which its structures are bent and broken and our own hearts right along with them. Ours is not a world of peace in which everyone everywhere is flourishing, living in harmony and in wholeness. But... In this broken world of ours, you and I, we who belong to God, we who are called to lives of righteousness and justice, to lives of doing right and of putting things right, we are called to follow the pattern of the righteous one who has come into this world. During this in-between time, God intends for his righteousness and his justice to find expression in us and through us as his people. 
First, God intends for his righteousness and justice to find expression in us as our just and righteous God sends his son, the righteous one, to reconcile us to God and to, to make us righteous in God's sight. Romans 1, 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Romans chapter three, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to reconcile us with God through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And he did this to demonstrate his righteousness. If we put our faith in Jesus, God sees us through the righteousness of his righteous son and he declares us just and righteous in his sight. Have you ever received the gift of God's forgiveness through Christ? This is central to any biblical understanding of what it means to celebrate the birth of Jesus. His coming into this world is all about us receiving him into our worlds, receiving him to our hearts. Have you? Have you trusted Jesus, the righteous one, as your savior? Has you, have you entrusted your life to Jesus, the king, and given your allegiance and your life to him? I would encourage you not to let this day come to an end before you take that step. But Jesus doesn't just desire for his righteousness and justice to be seen in us. And sometimes I think evangelicals can lose sight of this. He doesn't want, just want to put his righteousness and justice on display in the way that we have been justified and declared righteous before God. God intends for his righteousness and justice to find expression through us as our just and righteous God sends us as ones being transformed by the spirit into the likeness of the son, as he sends us into the world as his agents of justice and representatives of righteousness. We can focus so much on the theme of our righteous standing as Christians. Sometimes we can miss this call to a righteous life as Christians, but it runs all through the New Testament. And when you begin to look for it, you will see it everywhere you turn. Here are three of just a number of passages that you find in the New Testament. And I wonder if we may not hear them in a new way this morning. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of following rules. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We can't put our whole world right. Only God can do that. But we can treat others right, and we can put things right in whatever small corner of the world God places us. And so many of you are already doing this in so many beautiful ways. Righteousness, treating each other right. I see so many examples in this church family, among you as brothers and sisters together, in the way that you are living your lives in a way that lines up with the, the life and love and character of God, the ways that you are treating each other right. Even in the midst of COVID clashes and societal divisions and short fuses and family members at odds and, and ungracious comments, 
living out the one another's in your love for each other and in your love for your neighbors, encouraging one another, serving one another, praying for one another, extending hospitality to each other, building one another up, being patient with each other, forgiving each other, bearing each other's burdens, and on and on, treating each other right, doing right by each other. You all do this beautifully. So what would it look like for you and me more today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today to follow the example of our brothers and sisters who are part of of the covenant family and to live a life of righteousness that reflects and points to the righteous one who has transformed our hearts. And justice, putting things right, straightening and healing what is broken in our world so that everything and everyone might flourish. There's so many examples within our church family of this as well. And this, this is not meant to be, and it can't be a comprehensive list because I don't know half of what you all are doing, but these are just some of the examples that came to my mind as I was thinking about this. The Samsons and others who are part of the Isaiah 117 house to provide shelter to children who are at risk at the very moment that they are brought into a place of safety. I think of the Zabellas and the Wilcoxes, the Hydes, the Greesons, and so many other families in our congregation who are doing the amazing and sacrificial work of foster care and adoption. Individuals like Brentley Jordan and others, CASA volunteers who are advocates for at-risk children in our court system. People like Tom Johnson and others who who are seeking to serve needy families and underprivileged children through, through our partnership at Murdoch Elementary School. I think of many, many people like Kathy Hyde and Chris Wyckoff who've been involved in prison ministries like Kairos. People like Bob Truitt who have built relationships across racial ethnic lines in an effort to help overcome some of the inequities that exist in our culture that make full participation in our society challenging for African Americans. People like Daniel Pierce and Martha Riley and Julie Williams and Sherry Fry who've been seeking to provide care for orphans and at-risk kids in other parts of the world, in places like Jamaica and Africa and Romania. Men and women like Cliff and Gail Johnson who are part of the the fight against sex trafficking. People like Wes Tillett and Britton Weiss and Pauline Wine and others whose work in our community is to provide for the needs of the poor and the marginalized. And volunteers like John Grutzner who work alongside them. People like Jess Vandergraaff and Alan Bartelt and others who've worked with Habitat for Humanity to provide affordable housing for disadvantaged families. People like the Shockeys and the Covingtons and Beth Tucker who are seeking to provide a welcome and a home for displaced Afghan refugees who are coming into our community. I could go on and on. All people in our midst, part of our church family, who are seeking to make his blessing known far as the curse is found. What would it look like for you and me more today than yesterday and more tomorrow than today? to follow the example of these, our brothers and sisters, in living a life of justice that reflects and points to the just heart of God and seeks his shalom in this world. None of us are perfect, but even as imperfect and forgiven people, we are called to be good and to do good in this world. Through our actions, giving glimpses of the righteous one whose birth we celebrate at Christmas and to whom our hearts belong and giving a foretaste of the government that is on his shoulders, the kingdom of justice and righteousness and peace that he is 
faithfully ushering into this world one heart, one subject at a time. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, it is absolutely a mystery to think, first, that you would have sent your son to lay down his life for us, to reconcile us to you so that we might stand as justified, as righteous people in your sight. But then, having redeemed us, turning us back around and facing us towards the very world from which you rescued us and sending us back to it so that there we might live lives that are an expression of our devotion to you and an expression of your righteousness and justice as our King. God, make it so.